Hello, welcome to the first episode of Chattering with ISFM for 2023. I'm Natalie Dalgray, Head of ISFM and the host and interviewer for this month's podcast. This month, we're starting off with a discussion that I had with Dr. Jessica Quimby at our Rhodes Congress last year, and I was talking with her about some of her latest research on kidney disease. We're also featuring the first of our JFMS Clinical Spotlight interviews with Dr. Katrin Yarn talking about air travel and cats. We hope you really enjoy this episode. When you're managing your chronic renal cats, what other additional medications do you recommend adding in to support them with their appetite, especially when you know, someone has things like nausea going on as well? Mm-hmm. I do think it's for the individual cat. Of course, nothing is just, you know, we just say across the board, everybody yeah. needs this. Every cat will be different in terms of where it's at with its body condition mm-hmm. score, its muscle mass, and its caloric intake. We definitely take a look at is appetite normal or not. We might use mirtazapine or capromorelin to try to help with appetite. We also are looking at nausea, so it might be in hospital or at home, the anti-nausea medications like ondansetron, dilazetron. Mm-hmm. Serenia can be used long-term. We very frequently do that to try mm-hmm. to help control vomiting associated with CKD, especially I don't want them to lose any more fluids. So right. anytime vomiting is happening, we often use multiple of those medications together to try to help out with a, with a total package for those patients and really try to get as much caloric intake as possible. Brilliant. So you're really trying to keep maintaining weight and hydration. Yeah. And different yeah. Ways. yeah. I, I, would, I would back it up even more globally, though, to think about all of the other things that go wrong with kidney disease that would affect appetite, mm-hmm. like dehydration or anemia or hypokalemia. If I'm wanting to help out with appetite, addressing those things as well, I think is really important. Yeah. In terms of these chronic kidney cats, and often they do end up being on a variety of medications, do you have sort of general rules about how you approach potentially the need, as we mentioned earlier, to reduce medication sometimes, especially when they're renally excreted. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sort of rules of thumb that people can apply to, to reducing medication when they see yeah. cats? Gosh, that's a yeah. great question. It's On the veterinary side, we're a bit compromised, I think, because we have almost no data for mm-hmm. cats or dogs, for that matter, on how to 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 reduce the dose in medications or change mm-hmm. the dose. So that's part of what some of my work has looked at is, well, how is the pharmacokinetics of this drug different in kidney disease? And so, for instance, uh, again, going back to the two medications we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, mirtazapine and gabapentin, with mirtazapine, we learned that, yes, the half-life is longer in kidney disease. In the normal cat, you could give that medication the low dose daily, mm-hmm. but then you would actually have to give it less frequently orally. You'd, mm-hmm. you'd go to every other day. Now, with the transdermals, that don't, doesn't seem to matter as much. So okay. with Miritaz, honestly, that it's very common that they get it daily, and we don't see that accumulation. We don't see the side effects because they don't get as much of a serum concentration build up as they do right. with the oral. And gabapentin, again, in, you know, we've learned there that it is 100% renally excreted, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that dose reduction is 50 to 75%. We do have some later stage chronic kidney disease cats that are stressed and they do need it, but they might even, they might get 15 milligrams, whereas the normal cat is getting 100 milligrams. I mean, it's a huge difference, but that drug, they're not able to get it out of the body as quickly. And so without that, then, you know, they go home and they can be quite sedated. And we don't want that to happen. 
And then now we're, we're, we're noticing in the kidney disease cats, it might actually have a bit of an effect on blood pressure as well, especially Ooh. when the dose is too high. We're, we're just now launching a study that's, that's funded by the Every Cat Health Foundation, again, mm -hmm. as our similar studies were, to look at the blood pressure effect. Oh, because there's two papers in normal cats that show that it's actually not mm. affecting it. So that's a bit of a concern because anecdotally, I've seen shovel cats that have gotten more than they should, mm -hmm. and they're quite sedate. And when we measure blood pressure in that moment, it can actually be quite low, like even right. under 100. Oh, gosh, and that's going to be a concern again when for you your kidney disease. Yeah, exactly. So not oh. what you would want for your kidneys. No. So I'm hoping that this new study will help give us information to be able to yeah. interpret that a little bit better. Oh, we can look forward to, to yeah. watching out for that. And now over to Dr. Katrin Yan to talk to her about her JFMS Clinical Spotlight article on feline stress management during air travel. For someone like me, who's had very, very little experience with organising air travel, what would be your sort of top tips? What would you recommend? That's a great question. So I think there are a couple of key things. I think, obviously, the more time you have to prepare these trips, the better. It just gives everybody a chance to really think about what might be the challenges and how can we best prepare for them. It also gives some time to familiarize the cat to the travel carrier. I think that's such an important piece. The more comfortable the cat feels in the carrier, potentially the less stressful the journey is going to be. So that time factor is a critical piece. That's not always possible, though. So sometimes we do need to you know, plan these, these journeys on the fly, so to speak. I would say trying to choose a, as direct a route as possible would be, would be important. So we don't have much data in cats, but we do have data on some other species, such as horses, that show that the most stressful times of the flight were takeoff, landing, loading on, loading off, onboarding, offboarding, you know, those sort of transit periods. So having a, a, a direct route with potentially only one takeoff and one landing may be very beneficial. And working with a really good pet shipping agent to help with those logistical pieces of the puzzle. Pet shippers are a non-regulated industry, like so many sort of pet care industries, unfortunately. So anybody really can call themselves a pet shipper if they've got a little bit of an idea of, you know, how to sort of ship pets. However, there are a couple of very good industry organizations. One of them is IPARTA. The other one is the ATA. And the members that belong to IPARTA, for example, or the ATA are really experienced pet shippers, you know, they have to go through an onboarding period to become members. So trying to find somebody that's experienced and well-established and that's, you know, done this for a while is a really good idea because they can really help with choosing those direct routes, finding uh, pet shippers on the other side that are going to be able to help with the arrival side of things. They'll know what the country requirements are. They'll know what the, the travel carrier requirements are. So that's a really important piece, I think, just from an organizational point of view, because the last thing you want is for the cat to arrive somewhere, not have the correct paperwork, have a stamp missing, and then they've either got to stay in quarantine for a long time or, God forbid, they get shipped back to the country of origin. So Really having that logistical piece in place is, is really important from a, from a welfare point of view. And then finally, I, I think, you know, speaking to a vet who has some experience with, with air travel, and there are a few out there. I've got a number of colleagues in the UK who do a lot of, of air travel. 
and speaking to them about, you know, how best to prepare the cat for the journey. And that could be looking at the physical health, as we mentioned, but also looking at all those adjunctive stress management methods, whether that's pheromones or supplements or anxiolytic medication. That's, I think, is a really important piece. And then I'd say, don't forget the either side, because if you think, let's say we're, we're dealing with a, a, an actual relocation. So the whole family's moving house from one country to another. You've got that whole period in the old home where you're packing up the home, you're packing up the boxes. There might be, you know, hackers and movers coming into the house. We're potentially removing the cat's scent areas. You know, we're, we're removing their beds and their scratch posts and packing them all up. So that pre-flight period can be quite stressful. Then you've got the flight itself. And then you've got that post-flight period where the cats are then having to, to acclimatize to a, a new home. And depending on how many cats are in the household, that reintroduction process of the cats to each other when they get to the new home, that's another really important piece because each of the cats or all of the cats that might be involved in the journey have just gone through quite a stressful event. They're going to smell quite different. They're not going to sort of smell how they would expect each other to smell. So when they get reintroduced to each other at the other end, there might be an initial sort of period of hostility and stress. So making sure we do reintroductions really safely on the other side. There are a lot of things to think about, but those would be, I think, the most important things. Try and have as much time as you can. Choose the most direct route that you can. Work with an experienced pet shipper and then work with other professionals such as vets who can help prepare the animal from a mental, emotional, physical point of view for, for the journey. Thank you for listening. If you're an ISFM veterinary member, you can hear more from Dr. Yan with her full interview being available on the ISFM members podcast. To access this, please visit portal.icatcare.org. As well as the podcast, you'll also be able to access all of the other ISFM veterinary member benefits, including Dr. Quimby's lectures from our ISFM congresses, uh, monthly webinars, the discussion forum, and much more. And also don't forget, JFMS is now an open access journal. So if you wish to read Dr. Yarn's clinical spotlight article, please follow the link in the show notes. We'll be back next month with more interviews recorded at ISFM Roads and next month's clinical spotlight interview.